Welcome to the Your Life Choices podcast with me, John Deeks. And today it is an honor to welcome Colm Tobin to our Your Life Choices podcast. A journalist, essayist, novelist, short story writer, playwright, multi-award winner, oh, and so much more. Colm wrote the wonderful Brooklyn that was later adapted for the screen and was nominated for three Academy Awards. Best Picture, Best Adapted Screenplay and Best Actress. Born in Ireland in 1955, He's lived in Argentina, Spain, France, Barcelona, and, well, just about anywhere else you can guess. And Colin's latest work, A Guest at the Feast, which I have with me right now, I quote, uncovers the places where politics and poetics meet, where life and fiction overlap, and where one can be inside writing, but also outside of it. And I'm very honoured to have Colin Tobin joining us today from Los Angeles to talk about his latest work and other things. Welcome, sir. Thank you. Well, I have been looking at so many of your interviews and uh, I I feel quite uh, humbled to be able to speak to you because you've had such a a fabulous and illustrious career. (laughs) And uh, congratulations on a guest at the feast. This is going to go on air today. It's Christmas Day and I thought this would be the perfect time for folks to go out, grab a copy of this for the for the New Year's uh, reading that uh, we all like to do. And uh, this is certainly a wonderful collection. What brought you to write a guest at the Feast column? Um, a lot of them are pieces that I had written over the years. And what I did was I looked through a lot of pieces. I found that some of them had dated, didn't work at all. I found, for example, that there were three pieces I had written about the last three popes and each three of them seemed to me to be sort of relevant. I suppose the main piece, the first piece, is an account of suffering from cancer and getting chemotherapy. The um, the next piece is a long sort of autobiographical piece mm. that I've never published before. I mean, I, I did it as, a, as an e-book, but I've never published it in print before. Uh, and then there are various other pieces about the Catholic Church, about Ireland, about the place I'm from, and um, then about sort of literary pieces. But at the end, um, in the pandemic, I found myself in Venice. Mm-hmm. And everyone in Venice m- moans about everything because they, there are too many tourists, there, there, there are cruise ships. Uh, There's just too much in the wake and all the, the rest of it. Of, yeah, <laughs> the place is being ruined. And suddenly with the pandemic, no cruise ships were allowed and no tourists were allowed. The hotels were empty. But oddly enough, churches and museums remained open. At least they did for the time I was there. Restaurants were open. I mean, they closed early and you more or less had to eat outside. But it meant the city of Venice was reduced to its actual citizens, people who lived there. Very few people lived there. So the place was dead. The place was quiet. The place was, I mean, if you got on a Vaporetto on the canal, Mm. you were often the only person on the Vaporetto. And so um, I got to see the city in a way that no one will ever see it again. What was the first time you ever went to Venice? When was that? (laughs) I went to Venice first in, I think, no, I'm I'm sure about this, in 77. So I was thinking while I was there this time for the pandemic that that was, I think it was 43 years. And I thought, well, if it goes another 43, I really will be 109 or something. (laughs) I thought, well, that's a bit of a melancholy thought. But then again, Venice is a good place for those, you know, you're sitting on your own, you're at a table, there's no one around, you're having a coffee in the morning, and you're looking out at the mist, and the, the mist is being sort of slowly burned by the sun, and, you know, you realize those sort of thoughts um, come to you, I think, very naturally. 
of all the places in the world that I've been fortunate to travel to, there's only one place that I have been reduced to tears on arrival and on both occasions it's been Venice for various reasons. It's quite a magical place and I cannot imagine what it must have been like without tourists and those monstrous cruise ships coming by. Yeah. I was reminded of other plagues that had happened there. You know, there was one day where I was going up in a vaporetto up the Grand Canal and I looked and there was a, there was a, there was a little boat I was on a motorboat, and of course there was a coffin in it. I thought, oh. And then I started to think about Thomas Mann's death in Venice. But I think more really, um, there was a huge plague in the 16th century, and Titian, the great painter, he, he, he didn't die in the plague. His son did. But he died during the plague. He didn't die of the plague. Mm. His body had to, you know, it was very hard to bury him. And there's a whole idea that as the plague was going on outside, he is in his studio. And he's painting the most beautiful pieta of you know, Jesus being taken from the cross and being sort of held in the arms of his mother. It's the most beautiful piece because it's not filled with gentleness or consolation. These people seem really shocked. What's happened seems, seems oddly violent. Mm. And the, the painting is made as though it's sculpted. You know, the colors are the colors of stone. And they're not the colors of flesh. So it's, it's, it's a really important painting. It hangs in Venice in the Academia. And it's been cleaned, but I just felt, oh, Venice, you know, pestilence is not new to them. Because mm. Venice, of course, was the gate to the east. And everyone always thinks if there's any plague in Europe, it must come somewhere from the east. So um, Thomas Mann in Death in Venice has the cholera coming from the east. And um, so too did Tish. And so too did the pandemic. Mm. Colm, I love your take on the separation of church and spirituality. First of all, who's your favourite Pope? <laughs> oh, I don't... You know, I think we've been badly served in a way. I mean, if you just think of Paul VI and Humana Vitae, I mean, what was he possibly thinking about when he did that? It caused such damage. It made no sense. It would have to be reversed at some point. And you just wonder, you know, like how... What sort of life had he had? What, what, what sort of thinking was he doing? I suppose John the Twenty Third has to be the one that we would go back to if we're looking for a sort of sense of spirituality, but also a sense that the church really did have to change. So I suppose yes, the I can answer that it is it is it is John the Twenty Third. But I think since John the Twenty Third, we have been unlucky. Really, that's correct. And un- un- unlucky um, in what regard, sir? In the popes that were chosen. Uh-huh. In, in other words, I mean, I mean that you know, just to, just go, go back to. John Paul II was marvellous in certain ways in that he represented the sort of forces in Eastern Europe that, of course, would lead to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the opening up of the societies in places like Poland. Mm. But for for the rest of Europe and the rest of the world, for North America, for Australia, you know, he didn't want any argument about anything. He saw doctrine as doctrine. He lived in some sort of medieval space where... The lives of women were to be honoured by the church as long as women didn't want to have their role changed in any way. And of course, you know, small matters like homosexuality or like clerical celibacy, all those things, he just wanted no debate on them. He closed down debate on them. He saw debate in a way, because he was the opposition for so long in Poland, he had no idea that there could be opposition to him. He felt that 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 could only be a form of disloyalty. And so um, while he inspired people, on the other hand, he closed down the base. I mean, I, I think the less said about Benedict, the better. 
And I think that um, Pope Francis will make no difference. <laughs> Spirituality is something that you lean on in your talks. And I, I was just absolutely fascinated by uh, your reverence, if you will, of, of spirituality and separating it from the church as such. Yeah, I suppose I, I believe I, in, in the same way as you could prefer poetry to prose. Sometimes I'm more interested in the spiritual than I am in the material. Mm. The problem is that if you ask me what do I mean by the spiritual, I really will go silent. I really don't know, except that there are times when the mystery of things seems more interesting and almost more palpable and tangible than the actual, than, for example, than money or a new car or, you know, that somehow or other, in living in the world, we have to, I think, acknowledge that there are aspects of it that are so beautiful and strange, that are so mysterious, so odd, that, that we have to live in full acknowledgement of that, which is, I suppose, one of the ways in which religion enters into the equation in that there is a space within us all that is open to those sort of emotions. So growing up Catholic, um, it sounds like you've sort of really edged your way towards uh, Buddhism or to a, an Eastern spirituality. Is, is that wrong? No, it is wrong. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not good at sort of that sort of Eastern spirituality as much as them. Um, I'm really talking about the things from religion that are, that matter to me, such as stained glass, such as um, the hymns, such as the the actual rituals themselves. I'm sort of locked into that, <laughs> but I find being, being give, boxed give, give around. Me a, give by me a boy. A, until, no, I, hold on. What's that? Give me a boy until he's whatever, and I've got him for life, or something like that, isn't that? Uh, have you heard of yeah, that? Yeah, but they were they were that. that that was the Jesuits. I'm afraid we ah, couldn't yes. afford it. We couldn't afford it. We couldn't afford the Jesuits. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. You're speaking to a to a died in the wall um, Church of England boy here. Uh, now, getting on to something else. Are you still as restless as you were back in your early early days? You've lived in so many places and you've enjoyed so many different cultures. Uh, it seems that you're always on the move. Yeah, I'm interested in what places look like. So in the last few days, I've arranged. I'm going to go to Sarajevo. Um, which I, but I haven't been before, but I wanted to go there. And I'm going to go there in in June. And, and I mean, yeah, that, that, I'm, that I'm interested in what places look like and the just general political, social context of various cities. And um, so I, that, that's not going to stop. And um, mm. I, I mean, it's something I, I suppose I should... Restlessness doesn't sound great just now because we're burning up a lot of um, energy on our way to various places. And, we, you know, but... Um, Nonetheless, I'm stuck with it. You know, I've, I've always been like that, and I've always wanted to know what. I've always had a, just a big curiosity about places. Yeah, and, and and you've obviously absorbed so many wonderful cultures from, you know, whether it be Spain or France or any of the other places. And I know you've been a a, a visitor to Down Under many a time, and you, the writers' festivals, etc. And I can assure you, the next time you write in this town, sir, I am coming along because having seen on YouTube some of your wonderful talks, um, it, it's just fascinating. A guest at the feast is the book of which we are speaking of today. It, it's th there's three parts. Why have you broken them up into sort of three parts as such? Oh, well, Caesar divided Gaul, didn't he, into three parts? Three parts, which is to say in Latin. But uh, it just seemed—it just seemed a natural way of doing it, where, where, where you know, one one section is literary and the other section is autobiographical. It just—it just seemed a natural way of dividing the thing. I suppose I should ask, uh, how is your health, sir? It's good. I mean, I go back every six months. I mean, and I do—I I get into one of those scan machines, 
<laughs> that looks at my insides and, and um, mm. so that's that's been fine since really since the chemo ended, um, which is now about four years. Um, yeah, it's about four years ago. But um, since then, I, every six months I've done it, and every six months it's been fine. Well, there's nothing more relieving than uh, walking out of the doctor's surgery knowing that you, know. you've had a positive result. <laughs> okay, I've My got another. Guy. I've good. got another good. six months. I've got My another guy. six months. <laughs> My guy is good. He doesn't teach in my own cars. He doesn't dramatize it. The minute you come in the door, he says, "This is, this is all fine, by the way." Uh, Before he does anything else, but he just doesn't. He. I mean, it'd be so easy for them to sort of bring you out and you know, ten minutes later tell you, you know, the news. He doesn't. He doesn't do that. It's, and, uh, yeah, it's not a not a not, not, not a game show, um, Colm. It, it yeah, is. Yeah. It is wonderful when you get that. And and when you do walk out of the doctor's surgery, and you know you've got that, dare I say, reprieve uh, for another six months or whatever. Uh, do you come out going right? I am going to go and do A, B, or C, and I'm not going to muck around with any more time. No, no, no because I'm such. I mean, the word is either I repress things so well, or I'm such an optimist. But I've already made those plans. Mm. Good, good, <laughs> good for I you. Him, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, you, you were born so, uh, in 55. No. Are, are you going to slow down at all because you are running like a out-of-control out of train, if you pardon my French? Well, I'm actually, you know, I actually work pretty hard. I mean, I mean I'm, I'm here and I'm writing and um, I, I don't do any much else every day to play a bit of tennis. So, so, so it's not as though I'm moving around all the time. Mm. I mean, I am. Here in Los Angeles, and I am finishing a novel, and that's going to be the, the way things are for a while. You know, like you do have to every so often decide to finish what you're working on, and really, really just settle down to that. With no offence meant to our American cousins, and certainly those uh, folks in Los Angeles, but I could actually, having seen all the wonderful places you've lived, I've got to say. Um, looking across at the Mediterranean would be a joy to me to write. Uh, why did you choose Los Angeles? Uh, my partner lives here. So, ah. um, uh, yeah, oh, so okay. Enough said. All right. I, I know what it's like. <laughs> uh, that, that's fantastic. Uh, cancer is your first um, essay, should I say, uh, in this wonderful A Guest at the Feast, uh, then moving on to Brush with the Law, The Paradoxical Pope. Uh, any of these particular um, pieces that you've got here in Guest in the Feast have actually made it to a YouTube where you've done a reading? So I've noticed you've done a few readings, which I've seen on YouTube, and which are just wonderful. Well, I've done an audio of the whole book. Oh! I went into it. Studio and I, uh, for in in Los Angeles in I suppose in September. Yeah, and uh, I mean it's tough work. You have to really concentrate. And I yeah I did an I did an audio book. It is very tricky doing uh, an audio book, but that audio book is available now. I take it. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, then go on to your wherever your socials are, whether it be Spotify or, or what have you, and uh, have a look for a guest at the feast. And Column Tobin will be an, in your ear. Uh, gently lulling you <laughs> off to sleep or whatever, or while you drive along with this uh, this wonderful tome that he's he's written. Uh, what have you got coming up then, Colm? You're saying you're finishing off a novel now? Yeah, I'm finishing a novel. So I, I mean, I'll have it finished by sometime in January. I hope early January, but you can never tell. And um, it's funny about books now; they, they sometimes they publish them quickly, and sometimes they don't. So the plan for this is to publish it in. Bring it twenty four, oh. so I'll have to wait a year or maybe a bit more before it actually comes out, which is sort of fine with me. Actually, 
Do you uh, despair of the world at this time, or are you uh, an optimist? Um, I think democracy has a way of correcting itself. It's funny, you know, you think that this, it isn't possible that America could survive having elected Donald Trump to shame, sheer shame of it. Mm. And, um, and then you suddenly find that Biden is actually not only not Trump, but he's actually doing quite a good job with legislation. He's got some very good progressive legislation through. And he didn't do too badly in the midterms, which every, and everybody thought he would. Mm. So, you know, it, it, in other words, it, it's um, usually two steps forward, one back. This time in America, it's been two steps back, and it's hard to move forward. And then, and then, obviously, the, the big question for us in Ireland is, is that Brexit has been such a stupid disaster. Mm. And we watch England, of all places, um, always you know, think that Irish people are emotional uh, um, and nationalistic, and watching them get emotional and nationalistic, and watching us get sort of hard-headed and pragmatic. And so... Um, the hope is now at some point in the next decade that um, England or Britain, or well, it might be England, in fact, will um, change its mind about Brexit and just come back into the Union. I think the European Union will be good at bringing it in slowly, at making that a gradual process for us. So we just hope that some sense comes because it did look awful. And again, the matter of people did, did elect Boris Johnson. And it will take a while for the shame of that to go away. Mm. We all sort of tend to bounce back. And uh, uh, I'm with you, of course, uh, in the US, uh, the, the media play such a big role. And you've virtually got two medias, uh, one left, one right. And uh, the camps seem to be very divided. But anyway, that's a discussion that is for another time. And I really do encourage everybody on this Christmas Day that uh, – Tomorrow, when the shops open on Boxing Day, a guest at the feast by Colm Tobin uh, is available, if not the hard copy, which I am holding in my hand. Certainly the audio book should be on your must list. Colm, thank you so much indeed for taking time to speak to us. Thank you very much. Thank you. I could listen to you and talk to you for hours and hours, and they say, who would you like to have at your dinner if you could choose anybody, sir, you would be one of them, I guarantee it, and, uh, and your partner. Uh, thank you so much for your time and, and have a wonderful 23 and beyond. Thank you very much. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this visit with Colm Tobin from Los Angeles. It really is a wonderful read and uh, I would absolutely recommend a guest at the feast, as I say, whether the hard copy or online. Well, it's been a fantastic year and on behalf of myself, all the team here at Your Life Choices and my wonderful producer and uh, man who pushes the buttons and edited uh, these podcasts so I sound half decent. Ian Mack, thank you so much, my friend. You're a wonderful friend and also a terrific collaborator. And just remember that Your Life Choices will always continue to be absolutely free. And we do encourage you to please have as many of your friends join up as possible. There's so much information that is of great help to all of us over a certain age. I'm your host, John Deeks, and on behalf of all the Your Life Choices team, have a wonderful holiday and be well and happy. We'll see you next year.